but it's a curiosity as to where we are, what we are. Existence, the physical universe, is basically playful. Welcome to the Curious Humans podcast. I'm your host, Johnny Miller. Well, hello, Curious Humans. It's been a while since I released an episode, but there are several more coming in the pipeline. And for me, it's been a really exciting month. I've been starting a new project, researching resilience in leadership, visiting a bunch of friends in the States and starting a new relationship. And it really feels like a time for new beginnings. In this episode, I talk with Andy Sparks, who is the co-founder and CEO at Holloway Guides. And along with his team, he's building a new way to publish non-fiction books online. And it's absolutely beautiful. But I think he, what, what kind of drew me to him is he's just such a, a genuine and really self-aware human. So it was a pleasure spending time learning about his own journey of stepping into this position of leadership and really how he's forged his own path in life. We began the conversation with Andy sharing some dark moments that were early on in his career when he was trying to figure out some of this stuff and what it was like making the decision to close his first company and the pretty deep depression that followed on from that. Um, we talked about, there's a, there's a good story behind his Calvin and Hobbes tattoo and why for him getting an executive coach has been an incredibly important decision. Um, some great advice that he received on how to build support networks from the founder of Masterclass, how he's learned to navigate conflict with his co-founder and taking responsibility for what we feel and why we don't really have a choice about bringing our kookiness and traumas to work. Um, and then towards the end, we nerd out on some of his leadership mental models and frameworks that he's gathered over the years. So it's a really wide ranging and in my opinion, fascinating conversation. And if this resonates with you, I'm also running a masterclass in San Francisco on March the 27th. So if you're around and that sounds interesting, check out the show notes for more details or drop me a line. Okay, without further ado, I give you this conversation with Andy Sparks. All right, well, uh, welcome Andy. Thanks, thanks for having me. So for the opening question, um, I've been asking friends about if there have been any fiction books that they've read growing up that really resonated. Um, any particular stories or narratives that meant a lot when you were growing up? Oh, man. When I was growing up, there, you know, I actually don't even know what the name of the, the exact book was. There's this funny story, though, when I was a kid, I, there's like this question on a standardized test when I was like five or something like that or no, when I was in fifth grade I think and it was like who taught you to read and you had to write something in and I picked the name of this author who wrote something about like the King Arthur Knights of the Round Table or something like that it, okay. and I just wrote the author's name and someone followed up and from my school because they thought that like there was some strange man in my life, you know, who was teaching me to read. Like my parents were all concerned about it and I had to tell them, no, I meant like, I was... <laughs> but I really liked the, uh, I really liked the King Arthur stories and, and all of those things when I was a little kid. My dad used to read Treasure Island to me, mm. all kinds of like stories of adventure. Mm. I always loved that stuff. Yeah. Yeah. The King Arthur story is powerful. I think there's, um, 
there's lots of moments in our life that we kind of have to pull the proverbial sword out of the stone, um, particularly in the in the entrepreneurial path. And yeah, the, the reason that I ask is I feel like often those stories that resonate when we're younger kind of have clues to our life purpose in some way and what we end up doing for for work. So um, that's interesting. Yeah. I always love stories with magic. Like I love the the wizard. I love Merlin. And then Harry Potter came out and I don't think that I'm alone by any means. And so like, I think it was the first book that I read cover to cover and inside of a day or two or something like oh, that. It's funny that you say that. My, my favorite book was the, the Wizard of Earthy by Ursula Le Guin, which is kind of um, about a boy wizard that goes to a an island school called Rake before Harry Potter was written. And I actually reread that a couple of months ago. And um, it was really quite, it was quite powerful. It was a really interesting experience. Um, reading it differently now compared to when I was 11 or 12. Oh, I'm sure. I'm sure. Mm. So um, I've been following your Good Work newsletter um, and it's fantastic for a start. And you shared a, a really moving story about, um, you started off with an experience when you were 22 and you were, I think you said you were fired after telling your boss that you were invited for a white combinator interview, um, which is pretty funny in, in itself. But could you, could you share a little about that story and kind of what happened in the, in the months that followed? Yeah. Um, I, I, I look back at being fired with a lot of fondness because my, my boss was, I think he had started the company that I was working for and I had joined it when we were, it was small and I think he saw it as like a, a a kick in the pants out of good faith that I probably wasn't going to quit. And he just basically accelerated the timeline for me going out and moving to California and starting a company. Uh, at the time, it was a little panic inducing because I was 22 and I think I had like, you know, $500 in my bank account or something like that. And suddenly I didn't have a job anymore and I needed to continue with this plan of moving to California. And so I sold everything that didn't fit in my car and I drove to California and I stayed on friends' couches and I had convinced two of my friends to start this company that was was not very well thought through, but it was it was exciting for both for all three of us because we it was something that we could work on on our own and we had all been we we went to school in Ohio and we had all been really excited about startups and kind of the control or adventure and just kind of ownership and agency that a startup can give young a young person that it's something that is really your own as opposed to having to go work for someone else and mm. and all that at least that's what it was for me um so we got to we got to california and we ended up getting into an accelerator and uh as we got into the accelerator i started to dig further and further into the company we started to fundraise because that's what we thought you did and mm-hmm. the more that we were telling the story to investors the more that i realized i didn't really believe in the story I didn't really want to be working on it. That we had started the company for, you know, good. There were good, admirable reasons for someone to want to be independent, but they weren't very good reasons to build the foundation of a business. <laughs> yeah, yeah, so, I can relate. So we did that, and and I made the decision to shut the company down halfway because, probably eighty percent of the way because we we're out of money, but also a significant amount of it was me just knowing that this was not something that. I wanted to work on. And then I found myself in Silicon Valley completely out of money. <laughs> Not sure how I was going to pay the rent and like an expensive place having this existential like. crisis. <laughs> yeah. And, and fortunately it was eight years ago, so it wasn't quite as expensive. Uh, mm-hmm. But 
yeah, it was pretty nuts. And for me, it was really like, and I don't have, it, it feels to some degree kind of an entitled sob story because, you know, it was like kid moves out of the suburbs and moves to San Francisco and really fails hard for the first time in their life. You know, I went to a public school outside of Philly and went into a big public school in college, but like failing for me, I don't know, the consequences were like, I'd probably have to go move in with my parents in their basement. And so I called my dad and I told my parents the situation we were in. And I was very fortunate that my dad, I don't know if it was because he wanted me not, not in the basement or what, but he's like, hey, you know, ever since you're a kid, actually all that allowance money that you'd been giving me half of for savings has been sitting in a bank account and it's your money. You know, you, you don't know that you've been saving it, but you've been saving it. Um, and so maybe now's a good time for, for you to use that. So he sent me the money and I used it to pay rent for a couple more months and ended up getting a job. Uh, or a friend of mine was starting, a, or she had started a company and they were kind of closing down a, a portion of it or the, the current iteration of it, but they had some money left in the bank. And she said, hey, why don't you join me and uh, her husband, Kevin, and start something new with the money that was left over. And that sounded better than moving to New York where I had been interviewing and, and I didn't really want that job anyway. Mm. So we, we went on that journey and we started this company that pretty quickly had, you know, we went from zero, three people and zero dollars in revenue to a million dollars in revenue inside of a year. It was like 15 people. It was crazy. I was 23. And that whole time, though, we were starting this company and it was growing really fast. I was still kind of processing this whole feeling of, you know, it's kind of like, I don't know if it was like a small kid in a big town just getting sloshed around by other people's ideas and having failed at this one company. And I didn't handle the relationship with my two co-founders who were two of my best friends who are fortunately two of my best friends again now. <laughs> there's just a lot of craziness. And I, I definitely went into this dark period and uh, there's this moment that I think I mentioned in the newsletter of I was like standing at this train in California before I had started working with Danielle and Kevin that I was just so viscerally depressed and, you know, staring at the train tracks. And it's also crazy in San Francisco and mountain and this is the Caltrain because sometimes people jump in front of the train. There was one day that I like saw someone in a body bag out of the window from the train because someone, and I was like, you just think about you know, these really dark thoughts and trying to figure out where your sense of self comes from as a young person and figure out your place in the world. And there's not really a whole lot of good guidance on that. Um, and those conversations are weird for people. You know, you, you don't just start a conversation. Someone's like, how's your day? Or, you know, how's, how's life? And like, well, I'm depressed. And I thought about jumping in front of a train today. <laughs> right. Yeah. You know, yeah. That's a good yeah. way to, that's a good way to. Speak. <laughs> yeah. Pe people ask like, how are you? But they don't really expect a kind of full, fully considered response. They're just kind of looking for the token, the token gesture. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's, that's really powerful. Um, what do you feel like was driving you at, at the time? Do you think that there was a sense of kind of trying to prove yourself? Like I, I can certainly relate to when I was in my early 20s and going down the startup path, there was this real drive of like trying to like make a mark and to prove myself and to to show to my friends and family back home that I, I wasn't, you know, completely screwing up and that we, we you know, get, getting that kind of validation. Do you think that's what in part was was driving you at the time or how would you how would you describe that yeah that's definitely a big part of it um i'd also say a really big part of it for me was growing up my dad instilled a big sense of that he had 
a lot of the, the work that he had taken, it was pretty clear he didn't really enjoy. You know, he worked really hard. He was the first one in his family to graduate college. And I only learned later in my life, my grand, I thought my grandpa had graduated college, but it turns out he hadn't. And, you know, it's like, so it was a big deal for my dad. And he worked really hard to provide for the family. But he told me, uh, you know, we had a lot of really good conversations growing up. And when I was a teenager, and he basically was like, you know, it's going to be hard, but part of why I've worked so hard is so that you can go and find something that you actually, you know, enjoy or something that you really feel excited about. And I, I'm really thankful for that, but it's also, I'm, I'm sort of resentful of it from him because I'm like, you did, he didn't only he realized how hard of a task <laughs> he, like, he had burdened me with. <laughs> uh, but so that was when I graduated, even all through college, I was really trying to find something that like lit me up and made me feel alive in, in terms of my work. So I wanted to find something I really enjoyed and felt like it was meaningful. But at the same time, I was 22 and I, and I, I didn't feel like I was good at anything, mm. <laughs> like, yeah. especially after I had shut down a company, you know, it's like, mm. well, you know, what do I do? It's like, well, I, I'm not a marketer. I'm not a designer. I kind of taught myself some crappy design, but anyone else who's a designer would look at me and say, that person's not a designer. Who knows if they actually would have, but that's how I felt. <laughs> I had written some blog posts, but I didn't think of myself as a writer. Like I had all, I was an, I had imposter syndrome at every level. And so I didn't feel like I had any skills. I wanted to find something that I loved. I didn't want to go work in the mailroom and have someone tell me to you know, dial a thousand cold calls and do stuff that was just like putting in your, your time. I hated that idea. Mm. So I think I, it was a hard challenge to get all those things to fit, right? Something that you love, something that you're, getting skills for or something where you're learning where you can actually pay rent in the bay area like it's a hard challenge <laughs> it's yeah it still is i mean um and i think in particular especially at that age there's a real like um craving for kind of identity and certainty yeah. that i think is almost the antithesis of learning and, and for me one of the hardest aspects of stepping away from map was this um, this sense of like a loss of identity. Like I had been the co-founder of this company that I had some pride for. And as soon as that, that was gone, I was like, like, what skills do I have? What do I have to offer? Like all of my friends and connections were from that world. And it's, it's really quite, um, it can be quite isolating and it's quite, um, there's just a lot of uncertainty. Um, yeah. I mean, how did you deal with that? Like, I remember even sitting down and writing like things I'm good at. Mm. it's like a short right. list <laughs> <laughs> like, what am I gonna like yeah what was your process for for getting through that <clears throat> yeah well I think um I think similar to you this is something I wanted to touch on later but I I do a lot of my processing through writing as well and so I think I I spent a lot of time just journaling and just kind of trying to figure out what it was that I actually thought um and getting clear on that and Whilst I was whilst I was doing that, I was kind of kind of having real time conversations with one of my friends in London, and he invited me as a as a mentor for one of these um, startup accelerator programs in London, and just kind of sharing my story there and mentoring some founders. I, I just really kind of enjoyed that setting, and that led to a kind of part time role leading this um, accelerator program, which then kind of led to a bunch of other things. So that was kind of my um, I was almost thrown a Throwing a life rate by a friend, essentially. <laughs> yeah. But it's, yeah, it's hard. I got um, this uh, in between companies. I, 
in between Mattermark and Holloway, I got this tattoo on my arm that's Calvin Hobbes. Mm. And it says, the, the truth is most of us discover where we're heading when we arrive. It's right. It's a lesson I learned in my 20s, which is you think you know where you're going. Like, oh, I'm starting this company at 22 and it's going to be so successful. And then it turns out it wasn't. And then mm. you end up working with this other group of people. And you're like, I never, I never would have been able to put on paper that this is what I wanted, but this yeah. is terrific. And yeah. And, it, and it's an, it was a happy accident. You know, it's hard. You always want to have a plan, uh-huh. but it always ends up being something different than what you imagined. And it, yeah. it takes a long and time to learn that. Totally. And then you realize that you never really arrive at all or the, the arrivals are, are generally fleeting and temporary. <laughs> um, so something that I'd, I'd love to kind of dig into, you, you mentioned in that, in that post that recovering from failure took, took seven years. And my sense is that a big part of that journey for you has been kind of learning to get out of your head and paying attention to your, to your body and your feelings. Um, is that, is that fair to say? And, and what has that process been like for you? Yeah, absolutely. In, in probably quite a few ways. <clears throat> I think the first of which is probably something I learned from having a coach when I was at Mattermark. Mm. We were fortunate enough that when we had raised some money, one of our investors recommended that all, all three of us founders got management or executive coaches, whatever the term is. And I met this amazing woman, Christina Harbridge. Mm. And Christina was really helpful. And I went in basically, I was like, I wanna, these are the things I wanna get better at. And she's like, Yeah, well, none of that matters. I'm gonna, I'm gonna kind of <laughs> I'm gonna listen to what you want and what people around you say. And then we're gonna, we're gonna kind of try to pick some of this stuff apart. And one of the things she helped me really find, which I've now come to learn is kind of like basics of getting started with a coach is just coming to to notice your feelings, which mm-hmm. sounds very like woo-woo. Mm-hmm. But a practical example of that is if you're in a meeting and you notice that you went into the meeting feeling very relaxed, but then something changed in the meeting where suddenly you're angry now <laughs> or you're offended or you're, you're something happened. For me, I can feel my pulse race, right? I think it's like a, probably a very normal male thing to feel emotions in the form of frustration and testosterone. And right. Like right. just noticing when that happens and then learning to not react in the moment and to try to understand what just happened Mm -hmm. in that moment to switch from this is a very good meeting to suddenly I I feel like I'm being attacked or I want to fight somebody or whatever that, that that sort of like biological trigger is. And that was so cool to learn. And I was able to apply that in a lot of other places in my life. So that's like, that's one place. It wasn't just frustration and anger, but it was like, you know, if I, in that, leave the office and talking to a girlfriend at the time or something, I'd start to realize, wait, I just noticed that we were having a great dinner. And now this, now this dinner just went really a weird direction, like being a lot more aware of those things happening and trying to understand them as opposed to just letting your emotions carry you off in this wave where you start to say something and then you look back later and you're, you don't even recognize the person that said those things. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was really cool. The other one is through writing as well. I started journaling when I was really young, like in, when I was a teenager. I just bought like a notebook at Barnes and Noble and it started writing a lot. And it's always kind of embarrassing to go back and read those. But then, in, 
in college, I had a professor who actually assigned everyone to read this book called uh, The Artist's the, Way. The Artist's Way, yeah, I, I heard that on the conversation yeah. with Paul. Yeah, that's that's incredible and rare for a business program, I, I would imagine. Yeah, and this guy was, you know, his whole, he was such a cool guy because his whole story was he had had this agency, this like creative agency, and he decided to sell it in his 40s. And then he went to work at the art school in Columbus, CCAD, and he was teaching artists about business. And then a few years in, he realized he needed to be teaching business students about art. <laughs> and so this this was the coolest class, and it was that's great. It was only there for like four or five years or something, but it was uh, it was all about creativity. Yeah, so that's, fanta- all these, that's fantastic. Yeah, and so we had to journal every day for like three months as part of the class. Did you do and the full was, the full fourteen week? I've I've recently kind of done the the fourteen week program myself with like the weekly reflection questions and the. Three, three pages. Not every pages. day. Mm-hmm. Not, I didn't do morning pages every day, but I did them a lot. And it was enough that I think I was 19 or something like that when we went through this. And I picked that up multiple times in my life. And actually, one of the other times that I started journal, I did morning pages most frequently was, was in this period of shutting down this company and before Mattermark and I was sitting on the Caltrain and I would just be doing my 750 words. I was using Buster Benson's website, 750words.com. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Um, and it was, that, that was really helpful because I started to notice these things again and, Mm. and I was able to analyze it. And I, the way that I write, it's really like a conversation with myself, Mm. which is, I love these questions of just asking myself like, Hey, how are you doing? And what are you avoiding thinking about? Or what are you avoiding solving about? Or what's giving you anxiety right now? And when you name it, when you just write a bulleted list of all the things you're anxious about, Mm -hmm. (laughs) suddenly you're like, okay. Now that I see them all there, that's actually the burden's a lot less heavy, and I can I can figure out which one I want to pick to work on. <laughs> uh, and there's also other things when you write. You know, in my 20s, there was a lot of I, I, there's a lot of journal entries that start out with you know, my head hurts because I'm hungover, and then at some point you're like, I'm sick of writing that sentence. <laughs> like, this is really stupid. Why am I? I need, I need some better life decisions here. You know. Like, <laughs> Yeah, and uh, I would it's, it's so funny the things you learn from writing frequently. Mm. And I imagine you, you start so, to see the, the patterns as well. Kind of, um, if it's a certain number of days in a row you feel hungover, and then you you kind of uh, feeling depressed later on in the week. It, you know, maybe the things are correlated. <laughs> yeah, yeah, totally right. Uh, so those things are cool, and um, some of the other fun parts of writing I find are I, I write I, I have all my writing and. Evernote, all my journal entries are there. And it's not the best tool to write. I actually write in Word and then copy it and paste it into Evernote just because it's the search in Evernote is so good. And I recommend people do it. But I, one of my favorite things to do is what today is January 17th. If I journaled on January 17th, I'll go back and look for other times I've written on January 17th. So I've got like 10 years of writing in there, 12, 13 years of writing. And so it'll be like January 17th, 2010. And I'm like, whoa. <laughs> and sometimes you're like, wow, I'm embarrassed at how different this is. And other times you're like, I just wrote the same thing yesterday. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's that's fantastic. I, I I kind of do the same thing also in, in Evernote as well. And I um I enjoy reading some of the I've maybe been doing it for five or six years, but it's almost like brainstorming with past versions of myself. And like you say, you yeah. start to see kind of repeating themes coming up and it's like, 
huh, like maybe I should be paying more attention to this. And it just um, yeah. things that are almost kind of like asking for your for your attention. And it, it's it's really satisfying as well. I, I find a sense of um, of meaning, I guess, like looking back over a year of the kind of posts. And I, I do these like monthly reviews as well, which are just nice reflection mechanisms for looking back at the, the highs and the lows and some of the some of the insights and some of the learnings that have come through. And um, yeah, it's it's really it's really rewarding, and it, it takes time, but I think it's absolutely worth it. Yeah, it's it, it's a it's remarkable how much you forget as a person the highs and the lows. Mm-hmm. I uh, I did some I did a year end review at the end of twenty eighteen where I went back and I read every single journal entry and I took notes, mm-hmm. and I noticed like fifteen themes. And, and the one that I ended up, I said, I really wanted to focus on in 2019 was my was confidence. Mm. It, was just, it was everywhere. It was like confidence in discussions with my business partner. It was confidence in dating. It was like, I realized that I had this like system-wide problem with self-confidence. <laughs> right. And in seeing it every month and every month over and over again in the writing, I was like, you know, I just need to fix this. And, started talking with my friends. I'm like, is this something that you've noticed? And, you know, asking for some accountability and just really thinking about it throughout the entire year. It's pretty remarkable when you decide that that's, that there's something that you've been struggling with and you want to focus on it. It's pretty cool. But if I hadn't written that stuff down, I would never have been able to see it. Yeah. And I remember thinking back, I think you published a Medium essay on confidence. I guess that must have been at the end of last year. Um, yeah. how has your relationship to confidence changed in 2019? Like how, what, what emerged from that? I've had a to-do list item for the last like six weeks on to write a follow-up mm. to talk about this specifically. Um, it's changed so much. I mean, I feel like a totally different person. I think some part of it, uh, in 2019, like I published a book through our company Holloway and I started this newsletter where I was writing every week. And so one thing that really changed is I feel like I, I feel like I have some identity resolution and like I'm I feel like a writer. As a writer, <laughs> nice. Yeah. Yeah, that's awesome. And and that's really cool. And you know, there's still all these unknown questions about well, you know, can I start a successful business? Because I've been trying to start successful businesses for 10 years and we're still on, you know, try number three. But I've at least got the writing. And you know, I met, and and one of the things about confidence was in early 2019, I was like, you know, I met this girl at this wedding in late 2018. And I knew that I was into her. She didn't live in the same city as me, but it was like kind of, I was kind of thinking, you know, 21 year old me probably would have like told her or like figured out a way to go see her or do something about it. Mm. So I started talking to my friends about this. Cause I was like, you know, this is a confidence thing. Like I need to yeah, I need yeah. some help here. <laughs> totally. And in, you know, in March or April, I found a way to fly out and go see her. And we've been dating ever since June. <laughs> nice. <laughs> <laughs> and she's moving out here, you know, it's like, it's, huh. it's things like that. But when you think about, well, and this is probably a confidence thing for me that I'm not acting on this belief because I'm not sure why someone would want to date me. And then I realized that mm. that's silly and I should just put myself out there and mm. lo and behold, <laughs> yeah the universe conspires in your favor that's fantastic <laughs> yeah 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 it's, it's from the alchemist right yeah 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 wow that's that's beautiful yeah. um i'm curious do you still have a do you still work with it with a coach or an executive coach now that you're at holloway um 
Yeah. So same coach, Christina, uh, don't with, work with her on any kind of regular basis, but when there's something that I feel like we're struggling with, uh, I'll call Christina, um, my co-founder, Josh and I, we've been working together for three years now, but in the middle early, maybe also since same period, May, June, July, um, we got together with Christina and when you're working with two, with, with a business partner, it's just like, it's all based on trust. And when you, when you just starting to work with someone, even if it's been a couple of years, you can be in the same office with each other every day. But sometimes there's these things that you bring from yourself, like baggage from a company that you started that failed. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Like, or whatever those <laughs> things are. Right. You have to make room to talk about them. And mm-hmm. um, Chris, so Christina was super helpful. And I think in a lot of ways, she uh, is responsible for, for helping Josh and, Josh and I learn how to work really well together and now I feel like you know we Josh and I have a totally different relationship than we did at the beginning of the year and Christina was a huge help for that Mm, that's Um, amazing so you know it's funny like people I think it's generally accepted that it's an that it's a normal and wise thing to do to get a personal trainer Mm -hmm. right and I know know, it's not affordable for everybody but people at least understand why you'd do it Mm -hmm. yeah (laughs) and uh in a career trainer, you know, career coaches, you know, a lot of people are kind of like, what's a career coach or what's a management coach or executive coach or whatever. And it can feel kind of, I think it's just poorly understood. And mm-hmm. to ha- Christina, working with Christina has probably been one of the most important things in my professional career. It's just like, mm-hmm. anytime I've got a crisis to have someone to be like, Hey, I, you know, when I was leaving Mattermark, I called her, like, I think I, I think I need to leave. And she's like, talking me through it and mm. I think I probably would have made poorer decisions had I not had someone who really does this professionally talk to people mm. in moments of professional crisis mm-hmm. mm. uh, and and also knows me and is advocating for me and knows what I value and she also knows that and you know, she can say this I know that you value this thing and in this moment you're about ready to make a decision that's in total tra- transgresses that value and so you do that you're gonna de- you're gonna have to unpack it and you're gonna deal with it for ten years because you did something that really was counter to your values, <laughs> right? And yeah. So that's if you can afford it, or if you and I highly recommend people just try to find someone that plays that role in their life. And um, yeah, definitely. We so yeah, I usually call her when we're in the moment of crisis of some kind. <laughs> but she calls and checks in every once in a while. She's like, how are you doing? And I'm like, oh, I'm fine. And she's like, but are you really? <laughs> <laughs> so that's been cool. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. That's that's fascinating. And I think it's so it's so important that we have people in our lives who I think um not only kind of support and champion, but also uh, are willing to give us critical feedback and kind of push us and challenge us when we're maybe going to do things that are not aligned with our values and whether that's a co-founder or or a coach um, but someone who really has your best interests at heart that is almost loves you enough to give you that kind of harsh criticism I, th- I think that's so yeah. important and I, I, I completely agree about um, it, it's strange that we you know as, as say like even amateur athletes like in back home in England amateur rowers would have like entire teams of like physiotherapists and nutritionists and this whole support team to make them into like to bring out the best of their performance and if you think about um you know your role as as the founder or the CEO of a company it's like 
you're kind of the company's greatest asset and potentially its weakest link if you know if there's some kind of like emotional outage or or something goes wrong so it it's almost bizarre that it's not more encouraged and almost like um just just like an every an everyday thing and and I, i think about this from the perspective of investors as well you know if they're investing millions of dollars into these founders um and kind of trusting them to to run the company like not it should almost be i feel like a requisite that you know you should be seeing someone whether it's a therapist or a coach or whoever can give you that support to me that feels like uh it is just it's mad that it's not more common <laughs> yeah it really is i had a um only in the last some is maybe halfway through this year <clears throat> i've been kind of searching for a mentor who knows about enough about our business and someone who I can meet with regularly to kind of level up as a CEO of a company. And sure. I got introduced to this guy, Mark Williamson, who's the COO at a company called Masterclass. Okay. Um, and I go see Mark every once in a while now. And in the first meeting that we had, he drew out this diagram of a support network. Like mm. he's like, let's walk, let's talk through your support network as a founder. Mm. And so at the center of the support network is you. Right. And then it's like, who are all these people? And there's different flavors of people you should surround yourself with. There's a co-founder. There's maybe an, a coach. There's uh, maybe you have an executive, you know, EA or um, different people like that. But then there's also a mentor and, he, and there's advisors. He's like, what's the difference between a mentor and an advisor? Well, an advisor, you are you have a tremendous amount of involvement with on a very focused thing up front. And then they kind of taper off over time. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> a mentor is just like solidly consistent over time in your life and they really know who you are and they know what you're working on and they have a lot of context um but then there's also these in as a founder at least it's like my best friend in the world we get together every almost every friday after work mm-hmm. and we you know we go drink a few beers and we're like we're both in similar stages we used to work together and it's just so much shared context on what it's like and what we're going through as you know, trying to start businesses mm-hmm. that we, you get together and it's just like this hug at the end of the week. Like, all right, tell me about your week. Tell me about your week. And like, you know, yeah. it's not necessarily trying to solve each other's problems, but it's like, we both just know what it's like yeah. versus. Yeah. And I, having people like that, um, I'm a broken record about, I love uh, this idea that Kurt Vonnegut has about how, uh, most problems in in marriages or relationships are when you're trying to get the other person to be too many people. Huh. I haven't so heard I love trying to have it. I haven't heard that before. Yeah, he, he talks about it in graduation speeches like all the time. Um and he's he's an interesting character because he's he's like got so many beautiful truths, but he was also like a complete transgressor of all of those truths in his actual his personal life. <laughs> right. Yep. <laughs> um, which is you know, delightfully human, um, unless you're married to him. Uh, but <laughs> one of my one of my favorite quotes of his is, is we're here on earth to uh, fart around and don't let anyone else tell you any different. Yeah. <laughs> I yeah, guess you probably lived, lived that one out. <laughs> totally. So yeah, his his whole idea is you know we used we our biology is basically optimized for living in a group of 100 to 150 people, and mm-hmm. usually you'd have different people serve different roles in your life. And and now we're kind of left to construct that group of 100 to 150 people on our own. Mm-hmm. And sometimes people just go along, kind of picking up whoever comes along. 
mm-hmm. without thinking about the specific types of support that you need and trying to find the people that can fill those. And they don't always have to be people that are paid, you know, can be friends and you say, sometimes the people around me are really you know, not necessarily the best thing for me. And that can be really hard. That's something that I also mm-hmm. had to look at really closely when I was going through uh, in between companies and failure and depression was just like, you know, who are the people around me and, how can I find people that really value what I value? And there's also a period of suddenly you ask yourself, what do I value? And you realize you've never really thought that through before. <laughs> mm, yeah. I, I, I remember you said in, uh, you said to Paul that you, you kind of wrote down the values for Madamark and you hadn't, you realized that you hadn't done that for yourself. And yeah. <laughs> I, was, I was curious, like have, have those values changed, do you think, since you first did them for, for Madamark and in what ways do you think they've evolved? They are actually, um, my girlfriend and I were just talking about, she's got, you know, her own system and I've got my system. And mm. I was going back and looking at what I had written them. They've changed. I, I reevaluate them about once every year. I just kind of look at it. And I, and I start from scratch. I'm like, you know, if I, if I wasn't to look at my old list, what would I write now? Mm, and then nice. you go look and, and some of them are so consistent and other ones kind of pop up. And there's one I've been trying to find a way to describe for years that only a few days ago, I, I found the word for it and it's mischief. Uh, it's like it's it's like you know people that are just a little bit rowdy or unruly and you know they're they're okay with just a little bit of trouble and Mm -hmm. it's the reason why i hate you know tight buttoned up shirts and suits it's like (laughs) there's no fun to it and it's a really hard one to describe like but it, I really value mischief. And, mm, it, it, it makes and me think to, think of, sorry, it makes me think of um, Alan Watts. Uh, he talks about uh, uh, rust rascality and that kind of. Um, yeah, yeah just, ooh, I like that. <laughs> irreducible. Because it's kind of the opposite of being serious. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Totally. Alan Watts talks about how serious is such a bad word. And, so and the difference between sincerity and seriousness. Rascality. I like that. Mm. Yeah. Yep. I like that. So I don't know, remember, I don't even remember what the original question was, but useful. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And something that I wanted to come back to, um, I think, and I, I was talking to a friend of mine, Leo, who's been, um, he's now working as a, as a coach for, for founders. And he talks about this idea of um, different types of emotional regulation. He kind of says this like self-regulation and um, auto-regulation, which is kind of like maybe like our default habits, like maybe it's having a drink or maybe it's, I'm going for a run, the things that we do to kind of return to baseline. But he also talks about co-regulation. And this is is basically exactly what you were describing around the importance of, of having people that, like good friends that can just, you can kind of vent to and you can um, let these emotions express themselves if they've been pushed up after maybe a, a tough week at work. And I think that's one of the most important and maybe underrated aspects. And we've been... I've been reading responses to this uh, resilience survey that we've been running. And one of the most common themes is just this sense of, of loneliness that I think a lot of people feel when they're in positions of leadership yeah. and they feel like they don't have those people that they can really talk to because you know, their family back home don't necessarily understand and they don't feel like they can share the full extent of their, their struggles with either their investors and, and, and their, their team. So having those people in place that you can really just be honest with and say, look, this is what's coming up. This is how I'm feeling. And just be, just be heard and be seen in that. I think is so important. Yeah, 
Yeah, I don't know if someone said it or where I picked it up, but I am a firm believer that loneliness is the greatest disease in Western civilization. Mm. Like, mm. and it's not just leadership, it's everyone's got it and no one wants to talk about it. I think mm. that people are profoundly lonely and it's kind of this thing that Vonnegut's talking about of having your, you know, assembling your own support network, your own village, right? If you were to have your own village of a hundred people, mm-hmm. And I think a lot of people really struggle to find one friend, right? Uh, Tim Urban has a great post on friendship and like mm, yeah, he calls it, it Friendship Mountain. Yeah, yep. it's a really great one. I'm like actually curious. I want to follow up. You said is self and auto-regulation the same thing or are they different? So yeah, they're, they're different. It's a good question. So auto-regulation is, is kind of like getting back to baseline. So um, things like going for a run, going to the gym, the, the kind of habitual things that you self-regulation would be more of like your, your journaling practice would be a good example of self-regulation where you're, you've got specific question prompts and, or maybe there's a, a feeling that you're kind of, um, you're like, okay, I feel tense in my chest and you kind of investigate into that with a sense of curiosity um, and, or, or maybe jumping on a call with, with your coach, Christine and working through one of these felt sensations or one of these problems like that, that kind of more conscious, um emotional regulation which which is what I th- is the, the piece that i think the majority of humans generally are missing and i've i've been using journaling for a long time i, I think the thing that i struggled with with journaling was that i was still in my head a lot of the time and i was still kind of in these stories and a big part of my learning process has been actually to kind of go into my body and to be like okay i feel I feel grief or I feel um, frustrated. Like what, like what is that actual feeling? And then kind of inquiring within and being like, okay, yeah, just like softening into it being like, it's, that's okay. And then like inquiring, like, what is this? What could this be here to teach me? Like, what is the kind mm-hmm. of nugget of wisdom that I can bring back and increase my overall kind of self-awareness um, and hopefully not fall into the same trap next time. Did you have any obstacles when you're journaling or beginning to journal more around judging your own thoughts as you wrote them down and having that be a barrier to actually letting the thought get out yeah and I think the artist's way helped to um crush those in some ways because it's it's all about just this stream of consciousness right it's like you don't judge the writings that comes out you just after maybe a couple of paragraphs, you're just writing and you're not even like, no one's going to read it. I'm probably not going to read it again. It's purely just whatever thoughts are in my head, just coming out onto the page. Um, But yeah, to be honest, I did and still do sometimes kind of edit, like self-censor myself as I'm writing. But I always try and just go back to that place of like, this isn't, no one's going to read this. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if if it's, you know, not great. And I've, I've been experimenting with writing poetry recently as well and I find myself really it's so interesting because the best poems come through when I'm not judging things but it's so hard to not be in that like editor's mindset and I, w- I would imagine you know running a, a publishing company like that must be something that's quite challenging when your brain is constantly kind of filtering for like um you know grammar and all those things. And one of our editors sent me this really cool framework that this woman came up with uh it's called the madman carpenter or madman architect carpenter judge and so the idea is basically that any writer has to make a deal with four internal voices 
And so you have the madman who's just wants to write a thought. You've got an idea. It might be dirty. It might be rascal, you know, rat or I don't know. Rat. It might be mischievous, whatever. It might, you just need to let it out. It might be poorly formed or has poor grammar. You just got to let the madman go. And so the madman is often in most conflict with the judge. And the judge is like, mm -hmm. that's the person that's got to come in and make everything perfect and clean and polished. Mm -hmm. and The inner yeah, critic, the one that's precise. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And so you just have to make a deal with the judge and you say, hey, look, you get to come in later. Mm -hmm. Like two weeks from now is when you get to come in. <laughs> mm -hmm. and, and then the architect is... You know, how does it flow and what's the structure? And then the carpenter comes together and stitches it all together. Mm. Um, and it's kind of this cool idea and that there's just four roles to play in writing. And you just need to make sure that the madman feels comfortable to to just let, let loose, knowing that everyone else can come in at a later date. Yeah, I, I really like that. It, it reminds me of um, there's a theory in psychology around internal family systems and how we do have, we have all these kind of different personalities within us and contain multitudes yeah. and I, I, I'd be interested in applying that same um, kind of character creation to being a leader or being a being a founder and kind of what are the different um, internal like characters that are all trying to kind of fight for a voice and it, it, it reminds me of something um, I know you've, you've written about fear in one of the one of the posts that I read and there's a great story by Liz Gilbert talks about how she, she personifies fear and she imagines or she says you know we're going on a road trip fear is not something to be attacked or to be repressed you, you say you know fear come along for the ride like sit in the back seat you can kind of share your opinion that's great but you you can't stay in the driver's seat like we're we're driving we're kind of directing the car <laughs> in the way that we're going but I, I think a lot of people try and just you know kick fear to the curb and, and attack it and it's I feel like that's not necessarily the right approach and just leads to more repression than um than healthy processing yeah, I, I I really love the um <clears throat> the Benny Gesserit, uh what is it, the Benny Gesserit pledge or whatever from Dune that's like fear is mm -hmm. the mind killer and mm -hmm. the, but I think that's people know that part, but I think the coolest part is about noticing your fear and following it and finding where it came from. Mm -hmm. And that's part of the uh like whatever the I can't remember what they call it. Uh but anyway, it's I like that part a lot. Mm, yeah, and, and f for me, I mean, this is kind of the, um, in a way, it's been the segue from the previous podcast series to this this Curious Leaders. And I ended up talking to a lot of people around this idea of radical curiosity, which is, I think, exactly what you just spoke to. It's, it's this willingness to be curious and to inquire into things that are potentially uncomfortable and challenging to look at. And I think that's the, that's the piece that it's so often essential to have someone like a coach or a trusted friend to kind of guide you through because it's really hard to do on your own I'm, I mean I've, I've tried to do it journaling but I I'm sure you can relate that I have a tendency to just bullshit myself and believe my own stories and to, to, to keep kind of going down the same mental groove so I think having someone to guide you through or, or it, I almost think of it like a hero's journey it's like you have that that Merlin character who's like your advisor who kind of yeah guides you into the underworld process and um, gives you the confidence to just keep digging and surrendering into whatever whatever arises. 
Yeah, that's that's such an interesting. I'm glad you brought that up. <clears throat> Something I've been learning a lot about over the last year is <clears throat> almost like the next step. Um, okay, two two things. We'll come back to that. The next step uh, on uh, silence. But first, uh, I think of of life, like you know, uh, Plato's allegory of the cave. Mm-hmm. So I like to think about life as an infinite branching cave system Hmm. so as soon as you get out of one cave you're actually in another cave (laughs) (laughs) and sometimes in life you come across other people who've been in similar caves and you can really connect over that Mm -hmm. been in the depression cave you've been in the abusive relationship cave. you've been in whatever and you can really bond over these things Mm -hmm. then i like to think about you know, my own personal development in terms of kind of, I think there's definitely a cave that involves learning to listen to your own emotions and to and to have that sort of radical curiosity where you follow where these things came from. Mm-hmm. And I think the next one after that has to do with how do you interact with other people in those moments? So sometimes... I'll find something, some trigger, whether it's at work or my family, girlfriend, where something changes in the moment, whether we're in the car and I'd notice something that they just said made me feel mm-hmm. weird. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I'll opt to not say anything in that moment because I'm trying to figure out what it is. Mm-hmm. And I wanted, and I w- would rather share with the person, hey, this is what's going on, and I, and, I, and I want to give them the information so we can, you know, get better together. Mm-hmm. But when I don't know what it is, sometimes I'll just be quiet, and that leaves people to just wonder what's going on because they notice something happened too. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, the people that you know really well, mm-hmm. they know they know the difference between the version of you having a good time and the version of you that's prickly or whatever. Yeah, exactly. And so I'm trying to figure out what that balance is of trying to get to this level of perfection over understanding my emotions, but also being able to understand how I can impact the people around me. And, and that's like this new level of cave that I'm, I'm not sure what one does with it, but I know it's a cave. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, I love that. And I, I also love the image of like walking down this like fractal cave that just kind of gets yeah. deeper and deeper and deeper. Um, what comes up for me is, Firstly, I, I think there's there's a real value in, like you said, kind of surrounding yourself with those different groups of people. And I think having people that you can almost process with in real time. And I, I have a couple of friends that I'm, I'm with here and I've had some really interesting conversations around around anger and they they trust me enough and they've kind of done the work themselves that they can kind of help me work through that. And as you say, get to the bottom of whatever that is without kind of offending anyone um when you're kind of back home with with, you know family or people who are kind of harder to be around I think it's it requires a different a different toolkit but I think I think for me the the two practices are um so I did my meditation teacher training last year and that I think has really helped me train equanimity which I feel like is is a muscle there's a real like um uh, almost a window of time between getting triggered by something and then um, b- 
being aware or kind of occupying that witness, that non-judgmental witness space where you're like, huh, like I'm triggered. <laughs> and as soon as you're you're in you're in that space and you have some like psychological distance from it, then you can be like, you're less likely to, you know, shout at someone. And that's when you're kind of set. And it's usually from that place of equanimity that you can then begin to kind of inquire whether that's on your on your own or with with a friend. I, th- I think the challenge is we get stuck in that like trance state of, of anger or frustration where we don't realize that it's happened. Um, and that's really the thing that I think we need to train. And I, I think meditation is a fantastic tool for that. Um, having yep. friends around you that will like poke you when you're clearly like <laughs> going through something is great. But um, yeah, it's, it's really just going from that window of being like being pissed off for like four hours to being like maybe 20 minutes to like two minutes. Yeah. <laughs> and I think that is the, that is the evolution of, um, of that cave. I'm not sure what the name is. Danielle Morrill, one of my really good friends, my old business partner, she says that sometimes when you get really angry, you just have to let yourself trip, which is basically like, if you think about it, you just got a dump of chemicals. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Like your body just released a bunch of testosterone or adrenaline or whatever it is. And Mm -hmm. you're you're, the equivalent of having just taken a pretty powerful drug. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yeah. And you go through this chemical change. And you just have to, sometimes you just have to let yourself flush that out of your system <laughs> before yeah, you can get abso- back to feeling ab- rational again. Abso- absolutely. And um, I mean, this is something that I've been, I, I think I've struggled with feeling anger for a lot of my, uh, a lot of my childhood. And I, I had some interesting conversations with my friend Leo, and he he talks about this in context of, of post-traumatic stress. And in, in a way, we're kind of going through life being triggered it's it's like these micro stresses that are a form of like minor post-traumatic stress and from the perspective of our nervous system it's like it's like a mini trauma that needs to be completed and if we if that anger or that frustration stays in our body and isn't allowed to move through as, as energy it won't be it won't be released and that's maybe okay like once in a while but if we go through our lives and our weeks and that just builds and builds and builds and builds it's it creates, you know, burnout and, and long-term stress. And I, I um, some someone sent me a video of, uh, it was an impala, I think, an, an animal that had been chased by a lion and it managed to survive, but it's, um, it hid around a bush and it was just, it was shaking for like an, an hour, just like shaking out the the excess adrenaline and the fear that had gone through its system. And that was the animal's way of like of processing that, that, you know, the drugs, like you like you said. And I think. A big reason that so many of us run into the challenges is because we don't have that equivalent of like the shaking. There's no way to trip in a way that is safe. Um, and so I guess the question is, is like, how do you create those containers for safely expressing some of those um, traumas that I think do, you know, live in our body and have been building up over years of like trying to raise funding or being failing companies or all those things just get lodged in different parts of our body and um it's it's really fascinating learning these different modalities that allow us to try and access that yeah in uh you know i I was fortunate enough too when i was at matamark that we did this like co-founder retreat with Jerry Colonna and some of his, oh, wow. his yeah, he's, he's, so I, I, I was hoping to meet with him. He's down the road, um, but he's in LA at the moment, but he's, yeah, he's been a real inspiration. He's fantastic. Yeah. And Jerry's terrific, right? I like a lot of the ideas that he has around, Hey, you got to think of whatever kookiness 
or trauma that you had as a as a kid, you're going to bring to work. Like it's you don't you don't have a choice. <laughs> <laughs> if if you grew up in a house where you're you know you had a parent who was unusually easy to anger, then you're probably going to be a little bit more concerned with how you make everyone else not jump to conflict in at work. And so anytime that someone does get, you know, raise their voice or anything like that, you're going to start to think about that parent. And then you're going down and that's what's happening. It's not, has nothing to do with whether you disagree with the direction the meeting went. It's like, you just, you're just not thinking about this parent who has been this issue, you know, like, and all those things you just, and that was actually one of the things that was really helpful for Josh and I, like, my current business partners were just like, you know, what are these things for each other? Mm. And we sat there over a few Monday nights of just having a couple of beers, like getting to know kind of the stuff that we both bring to work mm. and what some of our biases might be in certain moments. And that was really important to know that, you know, it's what we <clears throat> need to help each other communicate about more clearly because we have these, these things that, you know, even if you're aware of, some of the biases you bring or ways that you get triggered, it's still in the moment helpful to know that. And, and I think this might be a little bit of your co-regulation, like knowing when you both know and work together, you know what sets the other person off and you can kind of say, hey, I'm not, I'm not mad at you right now. I'm just mad at the situation. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm, I'm, frustrated, I'm frustrated that this challenge is hard and that we don't have a solution yet. <laughs> mm. Yeah, that's, that's, so, that's so powerful. And I, I would imagine that would be, quite a difficult conversation to kind of sit down and, and have was that a direct result of going on the co-founder retreat with, with jerry or was it something that you kind of decided to do it was separately it was stuff that i had talked about at this retreat with jerry when i went um, when i was working with daniel and kevin and then two and two two and a half years into working with josh we actually both listened to a podcast from jerry because i think he's been doing a bunch of podcasts for his new book mm-hmm. and then he was coming into town and we went to an event with him. And as a result of that, we just both, it was on our minds and we started talking about it more. And it was kind of around the same period that we were working with Christina and just trying to figure out how to work better together. And um, Those levels of just openness. Like everyone talks about how important it is to build a relationship on trust, but I think very few people actually give anyone any practical tips on how you do that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, totally, totally. It's the, the same with the same with resilience. Like it's something that everyone kind of says. You know, it's great to be resilient and to be self-aware, but like, what does that actually look like on a day-to-day basis? Um, and that's kind of the the question that I'm really curious about at the moment. And actually, the, one of the questions that I, I wrote down that I wanted to ask you, uh, this kind of is a good segue into it, is um, how would you how do you feel like you now run and lead Holloway Guides with Josh compared to your days at, at Matamark, like how do you think you've evolved as as a leader? Um, oh man, uh, I, one thing I do is I write a lot more. Okay. Um, and I do, not even so much writing for the external audience as it is for when when we're trying to figure out a new direction. I write about the new direction, and I try to figure out what are all the questions everyone would ask, and try to get all the answers to those into quick, easy, brief statements that I can then use to communicate ideas to the rest of the company. 
-hmm. So that's one thing. Uh, another is Jerry has this amazing line uh, called, I think it's that uh, the job of a leader is to model how to how the rest of the team can do their best work. And so I very much think of that as my, and I even have a little page and I use Notion for kind of internal work knowledge management. And I have this page just called leadership. Mm. And it's like Jerry's quote is at the top that it's like the job of the leader is to model the way for the team to do their best work. And uh, then I have a bunch of different, like, here's what I think my job is. And I check in with that and a bunch of different sort of systems that I think about for different situations of management or leadership. And, um, and I have a little file on each person at the company too. That's like strengths and weaknesses, and and it's not to like have a negative file. It's just to know that somebody is really good at this, and sometimes this person's not necessarily as good at that. And I also try to listen to when people repeat things. I actually have a, a section on everyone's little page called the Gospel of So and So, because <laughs> usually <laughs> it's uh, it's usually when people repeat things they don't feel it's because they're not feeling listened to or heard right, sure. or they, or it's really important to them. And so when someone says something over and over again, okay, this, clearly there's something that we are not paying attention to here. Mm. Um, so that's a big, a big thing. That's a lot of what I do now when I was at Mattermark. I mean, I, when we started the company, I was 23. I was just grateful to be there. <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> I was grateful to be there. I was, I was worried about, whether I had enough responsibility. Mm -hmm. like I was always thinking about how can I get more people to report to me and how can I have more ownership and all of that. Mm -hmm. I was, I think it was, I was scared of being irrelevant or being replaced or not being important. And, and now it, I'm like, I would rather have as few direct reports as possible. Like, <laughs> 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 um, and so a lot of that has changed. Um, I've learned a lot more about managing temper and anger and I think Josh would even laugh about that because the first year and a half needed a lot of work but I think I've gotten a lot better at it um let's see um I've gotten a lot more intentional about understanding decisions and when basically to say hey this is your decision and if someone, usually a lot of conflict and decision-making in a company is because someone doesn't feel like they've had the opportunity to provide input to the decision and whether that, that input was actually heard or not. So to make sure that when there's a big decision to say, hey, I want to get everyone's input on this. I may still make a different decision, but I want to get everyone's input. And then in the reverse too, noticing when I'm frustrated because I'm like, hey, you just started building this feature and I had no time to give any input. <laughs> mm, right, yeah. It's, it's so totally funny how each you know each person gets frustrated with each other for the uh -huh. exact same behavior. <laughs> yeah, like there's this thing I did last week that you were mad at me for, and then you did this thing this week, and it's the same thing. <laughs> yeah, we're and that's where I think it human. you come down to the trust part of like, well, mm -hmm. we both trust that we're in this because we love it, and this is one of the most important things in our lives, and so. I'm not yeah. mad at you because you did that. It's just, you're just trying to move fast. But I also need to be vocal about saying something that I need is some input. And maybe if you think that I have, I need input too often, then we should talk about that. <laughs> yeah, 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 totally. And I, I think that trust thing comes down to like making generous assumptions. I think in, in any kind of decisional situation, yeah. there's, there's different interpretations. And 
I like to try and ask like, how can I make the most generous interpretation of this person's motives or, or actions? And um, I just, I wanted to circle back on that, that idea of the, um, like the notion leadership stack, I think like that would be an amazing like template. I'd love to see that shared and, you know, see other founders or, or leaders kind of share like what's their, what's their stack, you know, not without revealing the, the personal details, but like what, what kind of things are included and how does that evolve over time? I think that's, that's super interesting to me. I think, um, let me just do a quick, I think I could at least share the first page of it. I could share my screen really fast, but yeah, this is on my like blog post to write. Um, yeah, here we go. I, I can share the first page real fast. I'll just scroll screen through it with you. I don't know if you'll put this on a podcast, but we could just like, I'll talk about it out loud real fast. Okay. <laughs> All right, can you see it? Got it, yeah. So basically I have this quote, your job as a leader is the model how to be a container for your team to do their best work. All right, so I had it close. Um, I use the owl emoji because the owl is wise. <laughs> <laughs> Good choice. <laughs> so then I have this section on the job of a CEO and the first one is to be the calmest person in the room. <laughs> Interesting. Um, okay. and, it's, and, I have, and it's one that I'm working on, right? Mm. Um, these red ones with the red sirens are like important things that are also, they need attention, which is to run towards the hard things, mm. to make as few decisions as possible. Mm. Um, encourage anything and everything major to be written down for asynchronous consumption, to focus efforts on high value problems to solve. And then I've got kind of some of these, like I make decisions, we have a consultative decision-making model where you take input, but then I bear the responsibility, allocate resources, make sure we have consistent voice, simplify coaching like all those sort of things and I check in on that pretty regularly and then I have all these like well what is the job of a manager it's four things right Inform gather information convey information make decisions and be a role model mm -hmm. I kind of think about those a lot in terms of what am I doing in a meeting am I trying to gather information here am I trying to convey and that's from Andy Gray. Mm -hmm. and I, I, that's a really nice point of how you handle your own time is the single most important aspect of being a role model and leader that's that's powerful oh and it turns out the tweet storm that I mentioned is actually linked to right here from the, uh, here's the, here's the support system diagram. <laughs> <laughs> right. Mentor, executive uh, board, advisors. Yeah. Yeah. And so I have all those written out here because I know I've, I've wanted to send these to people before. So I'm happy to send that mm. to you too. Mm. Um, here's how to coach and mentor, delegate, you know, like, um, decision making. You can either make decisions in command, consult, or consensus. I've consult highlighted because that's the one that I try to do the most. <laughs> like all these are, I kind of pull these in when I need to. And I also find in one-on-ones sometimes someone's struggling with something and I can bring up one of these frameworks. They're kind of like mm. mental models, which have been like very in vogue lately. But, uh, yeah, totally. This is, this is fascinating for me to, for me to read through. One, one um, thought I guess that comes up is, how do you think about, um, given the fact that I believe Holloway is remote, how do you think about um, kind of encouraging well-being and uh, kind of the, the, the happiness of your team? And I, I say that knowing that a lot of remote employees struggle with um, almost feeling guilty for not for not working and kind of spending their entire time yeah. in front of a in front of a screen. How do you model that kind of um, anti-workaholism from? afar is that something that you, that you think about yeah uh it's funny my 
one of our team members gave me a bunch of shit the other week because we came back from the Christmas and New Year's break. And the first thing that I did was I went into Slack and I asked her for something like work related. Right. <laughs> I was like, hey, where's this thing at? <laughs> and she was like, dude, I haven't talked to you in like a week and a half. Can you imagine if we were in a real office and the first thing you said to me after seeing me for, you know, not seeing me for 10 days was, hey, can you get me that thing real fast? You know, instead of, hey, how was your break? How are you? Like, so good to see you. <laughs> now it's so embarrassed. I was like, oh my God, you're so right. Um, so, I mean, the, the answer is, I, you know, I do my best, but we're all still very flawed. Um, we're, we're, we have, four people that come into an office every day. And then we have another like four people that are not here in the office. Okay. Um, so, and I think we'll increasingly have more people that are remote. Uh, one thing we try to do is just, I try to make sure to take time off because I know that if I don't take any time off, no one will take time off. Also when we're like, there's vacation days or holidays, um, we try to be like, hey, even if I'm gonna work, to try to tell people, hey, uh, don't tell people I'm going to work. Be like, hey, you know, we're taking this. This is an official day off. And then if I'm going to do work, don't tell people that. I just do it silently. <laughs> instead of instead of saying, hey, you know, we're uh, we're going to Christmas is officially a holiday, but I'll be working. You know, you right, right. Subtle yeah. pressure on everyone. With the subtext and subtext, yeah, totally. Yeah. Um, so that's one thing we do. Another is just using Slack out of office. I try not to Slack, like to discuss anything really meaningful in Slack. If it's, mm. hey, can you send me this? Or, hey, do you have time? Or like small requests. Mm. But if it's a meaningful conversation, you should just get on a Zoom call and talk it yeah. through. Nice. Um, and there's been, sometimes I'm better at this than others, but just getting on a Zoom call with someone and having the equivalent of lunch. Like, yeah, yeah. Like we don't need to, solve anything particular but it's just hey how are you what's going on in your life let's catch up because if we were in a real office we would probably just go to lunch and talk about your kids or talk about something you did over the weekend and mm. you need time to let your guard down that's like one of the criteria that sociologists have come up with for, for friendships to form is that you need an environment that people feel comfortable letting their guard down mm. um, and if you just do that in meetings if you just have like meetings every and they never talk to these people outside of the meetings <laughs> you're, that's you're gonna have a hard time building the trust that you need on the team through that kind of thing um so sometimes i'll just get on and do a one-on-one -on -one walking with someone that's not a formal one-on-one -on -one, but we'll just i'll just go walk all around the neighborhood for an hour and talk with someone nice. yeah um some things like that are, are helpful and I, I predict as the team gets bigger because we're only seven or eight people now yeah. um as we get bigger all these things will become a lot more important yeah, yeah, that's that's really powerful. Um, so I'm I'm conscious of time. Um, I just have a couple more questions to to, to wrap up. Um, the first is, what do you still struggle with today as as a founder? It it kind of sounds like you've been through a lot of of you know failures and a lot of um self awareness and a lot of tools in the toolkit. But what is something that you you're currently kind of um working through or navigating? One thing is, oh man, I probably have so many answers to this. <clears throat> One of them is just that I really, really like what I do and what we are doing at Holloway. Like, I feel like I've kind of 
hit the the jackpot. Mm. But this is what I've wanted. I've wanted work that feels like this, mm. and I'm afraid of losing it. Mm. Like, like, yeah. And so that. it's fear, right? It's like, yeah. Um, and you know, we're a startup and we're venture backed, and we have some revenue, but we don't have enough. <laughs> and so we're probably going to need to raise money again. And so it's like all these. I know that this is a good thing. We're trying to build a new way to publish nonfiction books online that creates value for readers and authors. And I want to work on this for a really long time. But I'm afraid if we don't get the story right or if we don't package it up for an investor, right? Or something will happen, some calamity where we'll you know, have to shut it down. And then I, <clears throat> I don't think that will happen, but I'm, you know, that's the thing that I get worried about. Um, I struggle with, Sometimes I struggle with the, you know, getting into my thirties and seeing other people who have taken much more conservative career paths who I would say are decidedly not necessarily any happier or probably oftentimes less happy, but they've got the house and they've got the stability things that right now I'm like, you know, if I want to have kids soon, like I don't have any money for that. I've been doing, I've been pouring my money into these companies and I've been taking you know, below market salaries and I have no money saved up. <laughs> and suddenly these things are becoming important and, and I'm kind of wondering, like, do I need to find a, like I need to find a way to start saving some money, right? Because mm. there's other things in life that are starting to become important. Mm. Um, I also think about like how much time I work in a day and how I would ever fit a family into that. I'm like, and I get up at five in the morning and five in the morning, I journal for an hour. And then I, you know, a couple of days a week go and exercise. And then I get into the office and I'm at the office until six o'clock and I'm home at six 30 and then I'm cooking dinner and eating until seven 30. And then I'm trying to be in bed by eight 30. And I'm like, where the hell would I fit in anything else? <laughs> <laughs> and I look at these people that have a family and, and run companies and I'm like, I don't know how you do this. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, I know what you mean. Having had a front row seat to kind of raising um, a kid for the first couple of years, it's, yeah, I, I have no idea how people run a company and, and have kids at the same time. That's yeah. some kind of superhuman, superhuman effort. Yeah, so that's something I think about a lot. It's just kind of how to prepare for this next phase of life and, and keep mm. the things that I love about the current phase of life. Yeah, well, thank you for, thank you for sharing. And the... The first one in particular, I, I think whenever we find something, you know, whether it's a romantic partner or, or a job that we love, there is that like, there's almost a fear of feeling the joy that comes with it to its full extent, because we're afraid that it's going to be temporary and that it's going to kind of, mm -hmm. there's going to come a day when it's not going to be there and we're going to be back in the like sea of uncertainty. again. <laughs> it's, I, I think it's one of the most vulnerable things we can do in some ways is to kind of really like, like milk that joy um, while it's there, at least, and yeah. trust. That's know. another Vonnegutism, which is like anytime that you find yourself enjoying something, you just stop and say, if this isn't nice, I don't know what it is. Nice, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's brilliant. So, um, yeah, the one one more question that just popped up, um, speaking of Holloway, um, I'm, I'm kind of thinking about ways of redefining resilience for uh, for founders and leaders and so i suppose the question is if you were to write a, a holloway holloway guide on resilience 
um, for for founders and entrepreneurs. What do you think some of the some of the headlines, some of the mini chapters would include? What are some of the most important aspects? For you? Oh man! Well, quick company plug is in, starting very soon. We're going to announce that we're going <clears> to <throat> very formally we're going to start publishing independent authors on Holloway. So not just wow. writing our own guides, but we want to publish mm-hmm. nonfiction authors' books. Wow! So. That's the real exciting. answer is, I think you should probably write it, and then we should publish it. <laughs> <laughs> Interesting. <laughs> uh, <clears throat> but uh, what some of that, some of the headlines, I think one would be self-awareness. Mm. Just paying attention would be probably a whole chapter or part. Another one would be not being too harsh on yourself. So like judgment, being mm-hmm. like, self-judging i think would be another hole so once you're aware you're like well i hate half myself <laughs> and you gotta you gotta figure that out you gotta figure out how to and it usually means you gotta and then that means probably like making changes would be another one like mm. we've really got to like there was two two and a half years ago i started exercising pretty regularly and i because i looked at i got an apple watch and my resting heart rate was like 70 beats per minute mm. drinking all the time Mm-hmm. over the last two years i've exercised and gotten healthier and slept more and much healthier now but you know at the time i felt horrible and i didn't like that part of myself so it's like mm-hmm. stuff like becoming aware seeing the judgment and figuring out how to be a little bit nicer to yourself mm-hmm. making some changes and also knowing that you need to make those changes mm-hmm. um and those would be parts of it i really liked the courage to be disliked I don't know if you read that book. Mm-hmm. It's on, uh, that was a good one, just kind of on how you need to take responsibility for some of the things that you feel. And sometimes when you notice that you're, whatever it is you notice to try to figure out what it is that you really want in that moment. Mm-hmm. So maybe that's yeah. another one is like, another chapter would be on write out everything that you want. <laughs> mm. that, that, that that reminds me of a quote by um, Jerry Colonna has, has a question he likes to ask that is, in what ways are you complicit in creating the conditions you say that you don't want? And it's, yeah, it's the exact same thing, but it's worded so, so perfectly. Yep. Yeah. You're like, I don't, I want, I, I want to, I want a job that I love, but then you're sitting in the job that you hate. Like, well, there's definitely some ways that you're complicit in that having happened. <laughs> <laughs> and it might just be, that you're not going home after work and reading for 30 minutes or that you're not taking a lunch break and reading on your lunch break to learn a new skill. It might be something that's as accessible as that. I think a lot of times people say, you know, having a job that you love is only something for privileged. And there's a lot of merit to that. But there's also like small things where it's like take 30 minutes in your day and read any of the plethora of free information online on something that you want to get better at and practice that. Like, it's just like going to the gym. You got to go to the mental gym for 30 minutes, mm. three times a week. <laughs> totally. Yeah, I, I absolutely love that. And for if, if you kind of, um, for people who might be kind of going through a depression themselves or one of those kind of dark nights, are there any tools for kind of getting back to a baseline and just, just recovering? I'm scared to prescribe anything other than know that it's a real thing admit that to yourself know that you're not just making it up in your head and that you might not have any control over the chemical 
imbalance going on in your body. And you need to figure out how to get on top of that. And some of it may be stuff you can do without seeing a doctor, like, you know, getting to a gym or whatever. But some sometimes when you're depressed, you just wake up and you just feel like you know, there's no gas in the tank. And you might feel that way over and over again. And it's really hard to get motivated. Like, it's probably really annoying hearing me talk about, well, just put 30 minutes three times a week and go to the mental gym. And you're like, I, I, I hate you. <laughs> so I don't know if there's one thing maybe to just know is that I was there once, like I felt that way and I hated all that stuff. And you can just start to pay attention to some of it. See a doctor, if you can afford it, see a therapist, find a friend that's helpful. I'm sure that there's, try to find someone in your life where you can just talk to about this stuff. Um, yeah, that's probably all I can really offer. I wish I had more than that, but it's like, start to admit it, talk to people about it. A lot of people are really scared of being vulnerable with friends, family, anyone around them. They, uh, I, a friend of mine, I kept, I keep telling her lately, I'm like, you know, the way that people form friendships as adults is sometimes you just have to like find someone you like and you tell them, hi, can we be friends? <laughs> she's like that's horrifying for me to say that to someone you can't just ask someone to be friends <laughs> but I'm like I think some of my best friends are times when I'm like you know what you're really cool can we be friends like can we hang out or mm. go out sometime <laughs> mm, yeah it's like you're that. asking someone out as a friend <laughs> on a date on a friend date <laughs> <laughs> because if you don't say that kind of thing to people and if you don't tell them like hey, I really like spending time with you. I like the way that you listen or I really appreciate you for this. Like mm. th those kinds of levels of vulnerability are where you're going to find friendships that can be really supportive. So maybe the real answer is try to maybe set yourself a task of finding some support. Mm. And that might be putting yourself out there a little bit or trying to find some people that have been through similar things or finding groups or an organization you can join or try and go to and mm -hmm. let your guard down a little bit. People are remarkably responsive to openness. And when you really just let your guard down and you're vulnerable, a lot of people are very responsive. If they're not, then skip, move on to the next one because there's a lot of people out there and there's a lot of people that are very helpful. And if you're with helpful people that are not helpful, then move on and find some new ones. <laughs> mm, yeah, it's like a self-selection mechanism. And I that's that's beautifully put. I. I really like what you just shared. And and I think for me, a lot of my closest friendships have been forged through like the harder times and through, you know, needing needing them there and through kind of um learning to be vulnerable. And I think growing up in England, I also kind of equated vulnerability with with weakness to to a certain degree. Yeah. And it's it's it was only really through necessity that I um kind of came to appreciate how essential it is um, and how you really do need other people there when you're going through something tough. So yeah, yeah and, I, and, and it never stops. Even when you are in a good place, suddenly you might find that three of your good friends moved out of town in a three month period. Suddenly you lost that support system. Mm -hmm. And so you got to build again. You know, something that you always have to be vigilant or looking out for. Mm. Yeah, vigilance is a great word. Well, um, this has been a fantastic, fantastic conversation. Um, is there anywhere that listeners can find you, can reach out, can learn more about Holloway? And where would you point people towards? 
Yeah. Um, the best place to find me is on Twitter. My Twitter handle is SparksZilla, which is S-P-A-R-K-S-Z-I-L-L-A. Um, DMs are open. I'm on Twitter more than I should be, but I've, I've, I've met and formed a lot of really good friendships on Twitter. I think probably including you. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, find me there. Uh, you can email me as well, but email sometimes go to spam. I'm just Andy at Holloway.com. Um, Holloway is a great, the, hopefully my life's work, our life's, life's work here at the company. We're just, we're trying to build a place to publish nonfiction books online in a way that really helps people discover those books. And the big innovation is that we're trying to make it so you can publish all the chapters and sections and all that stuff as individual blog posts that you can link to. So if you're an author, it's like a new way to get your stuff discovered. So mm-hmm. that's, if you're interested in that, check it out. And if you're an author, we'd love to talk about publishing your work. Mm-hmm. Uh, otherwise, if you just want to follow along and hit me up, or if you're depressed and sad and just want someone to bounce something off of, shoot me a DM. Amazing. And, um, yeah, Holloway is beautiful. I can vouch for the exceptional design and UI that has gone into that. It's, yeah, it's a, it's a work of art, I think. <laughs> All right, well, we will wrap the show with that. Thank you so much. Awesome. Thanks a lot. This was a lot of fun. I hope you enjoyed this conversation. It would mean a lot to me if you could take a few seconds to open up your podcast app and give Curious Humans a shiny five-star rating. This not only helps more people to find it, but it will help me to get more awesome guests in the future. And if you're not already subscribed, then the Curious Humans newsletter is where I share monthly morsels of interestingness and podcast updates. You can sign up for that at johnny.life. That's J-O-N-N-Y dot life.